This is Leaked Lunch with Isabella Kaminska, the fly on the wall podcast that brings you to the dining table. In this week's edition, I find myself in Geneva, Switzerland, where I sit down with Adrian Monk, a former newsman turned head of comms at the World Economic Forum. That's the elite global gathering headed by Klaus Schwab that happens every year in January in the Alpine village of Davos, at least until COVID drove it online the last two years. In real life, gatherings have hosted everyone from Donald Trump to Vladimir Putin. But it's also become the target of a lot of online hate in the alternative news space recently. Adrian only had an hour to spare for me, but we managed to cram in a lot of talking points from the state of media today to what the forum is really about, and of course, whether in the future we will all own nothing and be happy while eating bugs. The session was recorded on August 17th at Italian restaurant La Finestra in the heart of Geneva's old town. And the bill came to 128 francs. As I was in Geneva, I figured to myself, who do I know in Geneva for a late lunch? And I thought I'd reach out to Adrian Monk. So Adrian Monk from uh, the World Economic Forum. Your official title is what? Head of uh, Public and Social Engagement? Uh, it? it changes, you know, depending on the mood. But um, I'm in charge of public engagement. And I also look after two of our sort of younger people communities, which is the Global Shapers, which is young people around the world who are 20 to 30, and young global leaders of young people around the world who wish they were 20 to 30, but are sort of 30 to 40, actually. <laughs> Missed the boat a little bit. Okay, so is it fair to sort of call you like a, the, I mean, for people going who go to Davos, mm. I think you're like a key point person. Everybody who goes gets your emails probably in your inbox in their inbox you're sort of a common denominator for most I, people i spam a lot of people and so yeah after davos a lot of my friends refuse to uh, respond to my emails because they've stuck me in the junk box but yeah i've um i've been with the forum 12 years now so i'm 12 years. probably a veteran i suppose yeah um and um you know been on the board for quite a while um and uh, yeah, I suppose I'm, uh, I'm not quite as old as the longest serving uh, member who's uh, clocked up 51 years, but um, yeah, I've been around a while. 12 years is good. I was 13 years at the FD, so yeah, pretty um, I did 12 at ITN, so yeah. I've, I've yeah, I want to ask you about like um, your old press days, but mm. what, I've, what I think we should do is, is, is order, food. order food. Okay. And so we're in a restaurant called La Finestra, which I remembered from back in the day when I used to be based here. And it's a, it's a sort of, you know, what I like, what I've learned about this podcast, it's better to not go to a restaurant with a giant menu. Yeah. Because I think people get a little bit um, Well, Italian bored. restaurants, I actually struggled with Google Maps here because I thought for a minute it was called the Finisterre. Oh, but yes. it's called the Finestra, obviously, the window, I guess, in Italian. And, um, and yeah, I'm hoping that they'll have fish or salad because either of those would be great for me. Okay. So one course or two. I'm I'm kind of indifferent. I'm, I'm um, more of a one course person myself. And I'm very happy to stick with one course as well. Cool. Um, and maybe a lot of coffee afterwards. Sounds um, good. Okay, so they, they what I now the waiter has already come and given us the day's day's recommendations, but I totally missed them. So they were melon and ham oh, okay. and tortelloni with ricotta. Okay. So which sounds good which as well. Which sounds but... like it's on the menu. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, I will have some, I will have some, I will have the tagliata. That's what I will have. There you go. I will You're have having the, the fish. I'll have the French fish 
Hold on, buttered roasted potatoes. Okay, maybe I'll go for the tuna. Or if there's a salad, I'll go for the salad. But tuna's, you can't go wrong with tuna, can you? No, I mean, it's... You know, if it's good enough to serve in a tin, it's good enough to eat in a restaurant. True. So, um, actually, it reminds me, because uh, you're based in Colony, right? Yeah, so we're, we're based in, in this little weird suburb of, of Geneva that's um, off the so main ha- drag. Yeah, because right, right now we're in the old town, yeah. which is sort of the, the hub of life in Geneva. The thri- is there the, a life? The thriving, you know, <laughs> the beating heart of this great metropolis. Yes, and it's yeah. peak August, so... A lot of people away. Yeah. A lot of people, you can actually find a parking space, which is uh, interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I actually never get into the centre of Geneva because, you know, I work outside. I yeah. live in a little village in France. So I drive home avoiding the centre of town. Yeah, and, a lot of people do that. And I'm rarely, I'm rarely in town myself because, you know, I'm not going to come in and buy myself a Hermes Very scarf or a Rolex, coffee. you know, whatever. And other than that, there's nice little restaurants in my village and so also, I, from what I mean, because the forums HQ, yeah. the HQ, I mean, yeah. it's got everything there, right? It's, it's a like sort a of campusy camp- yeah. kind of setup. So you know, you don't, you know, it's five hundred people working there, so you don't have to go and very got a far. Very good lunch, from what I remember. They have a very good cafe, which is super well yeah. um, run and all kind of, you know, ethically sourced and brilliantly sustainable and all that kind and of stuff. And healthy, because a lot of the time with the uh, office options, they're it's a bit. Super super healthy yeah. and um yeah it doesn't even do croissants in the morning it's all butcher muesli and you know nice so it's yeah it's uh, and they give you free breakfast in the morning now because we're <laughs> part of that movement to lure people to come back, back to, work. to the office yeah. yeah so i want to ask you all about the online mm-hmm. you know experience and how that went but before we do that and before yeah. they come and take our order so you've been at the forum, which is what the preferred nomenclature is, right? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of, you know, it is, I know people call it the WEF. We call it the forum. Um, I think as an outsider, I've always called it WEF because, I don't know, it's just the, 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 what, what our newsrooms tend to do. The problem is there's a very famous World Equine Festival, <laughs> which, okay. um, you know, confused. really, you don't want to confuse the two things. No. You know, you don't want to be arriving in, in Davos by horse. You know, um, in winter because no, their no. little hooves slip on the pavement <laughs> definitely um no, no no attention yet from the waiter but um the um so you've been here 12 years but you came from hard news like you were a newsman uh, i was a news person i mean i was um basically a tv journalist for nearly 20 years with cbs itn and then sky and actually then afterwards i became a i guess you call them a hackademic you yes. know, which is uh, i became professor of journalism ran the journalism school at city university you were all oh, right because i was at lcp back in the well, day i'm sorry you couldn't get into city <laughs> I was with, I don't know if you know, Sarah Niblock was my... Yes, and Sarah Niblock actually went to City and uh, was one of our lecturers um, and and then set up the journalism department at Brunel. Oh, right. So, yeah, she's... um, Well, she was great. I really enjoyed working with her. Academic, good researcher and, and really good teacher. And really into prints, if I recall. Don't but, know if... Yes, I think she's been writing about it, but that's irrelevant. She had one very quite famous article on something that attracted a lot of um, attention. Yes. Is all I will say about okay. that. We won't, we won't, won't recall that. But um, I was... That's um, Yes. Okay. Um, to the right. I'm a lefty, so yeah, you know, I always get confused. Um, 
But do you miss it? Do you miss real journalism? Do I miss real journalism? I mean, I I do and I don't. I don't miss the being a yeah. an exec in news, which is like you know who am I going to have to fire next week? Uh-oh. You know who? Uh, you know we've overrun covering the war. Um, you know how many ja- you know flat jackets can we afford? I mean, all of those kind of things. I don't miss. I don't miss having conversations like, you know, you go for a, a walk with friends on a Sunday and someone phones and says, how much of someone's head being cut off can we show? No, I don't good. miss that stuff. And I don't miss, you know, friends and colleagues getting killed in the line of duty, which happens. Yeah. Um, and so, no, I don't miss that part of it. I had a great time as a journalist. I really enjoyed it. You know, I was a war reporter in my 20s. I was, a, you know, I ran a newsroom in my 30s and loved the people and loved the work but so did you get on the ground like um, I was in Bosnia I was in uh, the Middle East I was in uh, did a lot of work in Northern Ireland and I also did a lot of social reporting and you know council estates around Britain and and some of the rusty tufty places that that the UK has so a lot of that and you were also involved in Channel 5's um, started Channel 5 with Kirsty Young and a bunch of other young people Craig Oliver and uh, John Williams who runs RTE now or just stopped running RTE and uh, a bunch of other very talented folks Um, and that was a lot of fun because we were all young we all wanted to do something different we all had a kind of approach to news that was kind of you know less than reverential yeah, yeah and yeah it was just a great place to work i mean you're working with other 30 year olds when you're 30 and there's no you know you're the grown-up so it was fantastic ah here comes the waiter we, we're ready uh, monsieur uh, le ton s'il vous plaît le ton merci moyen s'il vous plaît Tagliata? Tagliata? Do you want anything else to drink other than sparkling water? Sparkling water is perfectly good by me. All right. Medium. Medium. Merci. That was easy. That was one of the easiest uh, orderings. Straight down the line, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Very good. Um, Yeah, so you said you were non-referential. Do you think that's important in journalism? Well, I think, you know, you can't go into journalism as a kind of, you know, hagiographer or a Mm. kind of, you know, there's some great quotes in in journalism kind of writing isn't yes. it? You know, Janet Malcolm the journalist's duty is to betray you know you've got uh, Mencken you know the relationship between authority and journalism is you know it's a dog in the lamppost I mean journalism you don't go into journalism because you really really want to suck up to people no. and and be nice yeah. you know you go in because you're usually you've got some kind of critical take on society and you'd like to share it um, or at least find ways of presenting it through stories and from your vantage point now obviously how, how like as an outsider being mm. on the on the PR side basically yeah, yeah, yeah. do you have you sensed that that I mean what's your take on the current sort of media landscape do you have one well as I'm, a lecturer as, as a someone who studied the media I, mean, I think it's a tough place to be yeah as as a journalist you know it's uh, there are some amazing organizations still but you know it's been a flight to very few organizations you know you had this landscape where there was a huge number of dailies and evening papers in the US huge number of media properties where people could grow and develop and do things and then basically you know now if you're in the US like the New York Times hired everybody you know they even you know they're Ben Smith as they're kind of you know who ran BuzzFeed running their media column I mean 
everyone just kind of got sucked into the New York Times. And there's very few places left to go. The places that there are left to go are brilliant. I mean, they do brilliant work, amazing things. But that, you know, how sustainable is that? Difficult to say. We've lost a whole tranche of kind of accountability in journalism at local level. Um, you know, and that that struggle is to come back. Look at something like Axios, which is starting to launch city editions and try to repair some of that damage. But, you know, you're replacing newsrooms that grew someone like David Simon, who wrote The Wire and, you know, wrote The Corner about Baltimore and drugs and gangs. And you're replacing him with like one person yeah, yeah. who's got to do everything. Yeah. And so, you know, he just did crime and he just hung out with cops. Yeah. And I mean, that kind of thing, it's not coming back. And I, th I get the impression everyone is so remote now and you don't get the sort of on the, like when I was at LCP, mm. you know, like the, the basic training was like going out and speaking to people. I did some, like we did like, I think I did some time at the Yorkshire Evening Post or something, mm. or the Ealing Gazette, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was part of the uh, career pathway, right? Yeah. Whereas I think these days that is a little bit lost. You don't I mean, have that. You know, one of my good friends is um, a great investigative journalist, a guy called Stephen Gray, who works for Reuters. You know, Stephen started life uh, on the Eastern Daily Press, you know, out in the disadvertiser or something, working in a tiny, tiny town where you've got to really go and do the 60-year-old, uh, 60th wedding anniversary stuff and, and you've got to go and talk to people and try and root yeah. for pearls amongst, uh, you know, the acorns. And it's it's tough. You know, that kind of journalism heritage is has gone now, really. It really and, has. And people don't do that. That You know, people now go into graduate trainee schemes through programs like the city program you know which are master's degrees when i became a journalist guess what i was from you know born in a council house couldn't afford to go to do a master's anywhere couldn't afford to do anything i had to go straight into work and i was very lucky because cbs didn't require a press card yeah. and i'd worked there in my holidays and, oh, wow. and they basically hired me straight out of college, which was my lucky break, right? I mean, that's a really interesting point because um, back in the day, the, pr the profession, press, the hack profession, um, was quite working class. I mean, and it now, was with people like James Cameron and, you know, the people I kind of admired yes. growing up. They were people who'd left school at 14, mm -hmm. like my dad, um, you know, and they were people who who'd made their way up through the ranks of, um, you know, this business of, of journalism. And if you looked at the TV journalists who were great figures when I grew up, you know, people, I mean, they were old then, but um, people like Alan Wicker, for example, who, you know, I mean, I by the time I knew him, he was a kind of joke. But, you know, when you came to know his earlier work and some of the, uh, the you know, the journalists in the 60s and 70s who did things like Nationwide, you know, James Burke, who was the science reporter on Nationwide, who went on to do this fabulous connection series and this kind of stuff. Connections. Yeah, these people were, you know, inspirational. They weren't cookie cutter individuals. You know, some of them had come through the kind of Oxbridge mill for the BBC graduate trainee program and that kind of stuff. But, you know, a lot of them looked like real people. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, they didn't they look weren't. like head girls and head boys who had done everything right and had got CVs that would get them through the BBC selection mill. Right. You know. And now we've got this sort of college graduate. Yeah, I mean, that's just a 
given. You're, you have to be a college graduate. I mean, sort of look at the level. number of names that you see in, in journalism where you're like, that sounds familiar. And it is familiar because like it's the son of, daughter yeah. of somebody who was a famous journalist. And you know, you don't just see that in journalism, you see it in a whole host of different professions and different places. And it's, it's super depressing. Yeah, I mean, you know, for someone like me who was born thinking that the world was going to get more meritocratic, more progressive, you know, I grew up with, you know, looking up to people like Michael Caine and that kind of generation of people kind of breaking through, you know, Albert Finney in Saturday morning, you know, Sunday night, Saturday morning, uh, Saturday night, Sunday morning, in fact, yeah. um, you know, that kind of working class breaking through narrative, you know, I. I was such an idiot. I thought, wow, this is the way the world's yeah. going. You know, people like Boris Johnson, who was at university with me at the same time. I, I just thought, poor guy. It's, like, he, he's, <laughs> it's he, not his era. It's not his time. It, you know, these kind of guys, they're, they're all gone, you know. But I was wrong and they were right. Well, I mean, that's a good way to pivot to like, I mean, you, met, you mentioned connections. Nowadays, I mean, obviously there are two sides to this. So a forum, I guess, in the eyes of the average person these days, is perceived to be like peak elite, you know, um, gathering. And, you know, I, I myself have made the argument recently that I think that's the wrong take on, on the forum because it's not that it's inclusive because obviously you have to be of a certain level um but it i i do i i've likened it to sort of the blockchain of, of the human blockchain in that if you've got the money it's an opt-in structure structure as far as i can see and maybe i'm wrong it's not like you decline mem or maybe you do decline membership i mean there are obviously there's a committee that i mean obviously you won't take at, like that looks ISIS. at membership so <laughs> you know it's and it's businesses uh, who are the members of the forum. Yeah. It's not a lobbying organization because some of these businesses have completely antithetical yeah. interests, yeah. but it's an organization that's trying to bring people at the very top of global business together. And that usually means businesses that turn over more than $5 billion a year. And you know that's a limiting factor in itself. Yeah. So of those, you know, probably something like 30, 40% are engaged with the forum as part of you know, their whole portfolio of things that they do. Unlike, I guess what I'm saying is that unlike some other elite gathering, the commercial players can openly and transparently kind of become part of it. Whereas it's not like, say, some other of the uh, favorite conspiracy targets like it's, Bilderberg or whatever. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's quite straightforward to become a member of the forum and to join the forum as a big corporation. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of work streams that we're involved in. There's a lot of things that we do. You know, one of the things we're doing at the moment is this First Movers Coalition with John Kerry and Joe Biden endorsed it, which is basically taking 100 plus of the world's biggest companies and having them go through their supply chains and their buying uh -huh. to use purchasing as a way of changing behaviors right down the system. Okay. And, you know, and we were one of the early movers in the whole supply chain movement uh -huh. of saying, can you decarbonize supply chains or can you use supply chain power mm. to actually do things that governments can't get at and can't do? And can you do them faster? And that kind of work is the sort of thing the forum does. And it brings together these coalitions, it brings together companies, it brings together civil society, it brings together business and, and academics as well to kind of try and see if there are commonalities of interest in places where you can make small incremental steps in the right direction. I guess for people like 
So back in the day, 12 years ago, when I, uh, or 13 years ago, when I first uh, joined the FT, I think the the forum WEF didn't have a, it, it was a thing, don't get me wrong. Everyone knew in that little circle, in the media finance circle, everyone knew it. Um, but from a popular perspective, I think it was still relatively fringe. And like you'd speak to friends and families, they wouldn't have a clue about it, right? Mm. Um, that has that has changed in recent in in recent years, especially. Um, I mean, partly it changed because we, you know, one of the things I was brought in to do was to kind of you know make the forums work more accessible and more available to people. But and, I guess I guess the question you know, I'm getting at is like, since it's become more public focused, like mm. what? How would you explain what the forum is? Because I think that's sometimes quite, like, from a popular perspective, it's perceived to be everything from a cult to mm. a uh, some sort of NGO yeah. to like you know the mission statement is famously you know what is it committed to improving the state of the world. It's, yeah, that seems like a good good it's, mission statement. It's a, quite a good one. It's good for meetings when you can you know shut people up and say, well, how does this actually improve the state of the world right um, basically you know we are an incrementalist small I small P progressive organization we believe in the science of climate change we believe that empowering uh, women is good for economies we believe that you know small C capitalism is probably the way to implement all the changes that need to be made and you know and for our critics who typically in the early 2000s were the far left, um, you know, uh, and the black bloc kind of characters, you know, that's not, you know, that's not what they want to see the world doing. And, and, you know, there's a very valid case for saying that the world also needs systemic change as well as incremental change. I mean, that that is really interesting because it was like back in the day when I first was covering finance, it was very much the anti-capitalists mm. who were targeting WEF. So yeah. they would come to the forum. Presumably, they, 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 they would target the forum on the ground as well? Or? I mean, only really once in uh, Australia when there was a regional event that was organised around the time of the whole WTO yeah. things in the, as the sort of end of the um, 20th century, beginning of the 21st. Yeah. And there was one kind of notable meeting where, um, you know, the Australian left kind of mobilised and, and uh, had a pop-up at the forum. Um, you know, there have always been tiny, tiny demonstrations of, you know, 80 or 90 people from the sort of the local Green Party in Davos, but mostly actually people in Switzerland are pretty you know, accommodating of, of having us, you know, invade a small town in the Alps every uh, every January, you know. It is, it's interesting you call it an invasion, but it is like on the ground. It, when I, you know, the one time I went, it is a takeover. Like well, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's a town of 10, 11,000 yeah. people and <coughs> suddenly 30,000 people arrive. Yeah. Not all with us, I hasten to yeah, add, because yeah. there's, there's a whole fringe of it that we it's have like the no, Edinburgh, Edinburgh Kind of festival, like, you know, yeah. that and combination of that, the Hay Festival and yeah. And a, you know an IMF um, World Bank sort of meeting. It's a, it's a kind of weird mashup. Um, but yeah, it's um, you know local people have always been actually very nice about it and very supportive. And one of the interesting things about having it in Switzerland is that you have to get approval for almost everything you do at sort of yeah. parish council level, you know local level, borough level you know right up to national level you know if you did an event like this in in the US or somewhere else you know you wouldn't need to go through all the different layers of 
no. of approval and democratic accountability that you have to do in Switzerland. And, you know, that's a unique thing and very Swiss. That is very Swiss. So just looping back to finish off the like journalism conversation. Mm. Um, so what we've seen the rise of citizen journalists in yeah. lieu of like local journalists and yeah. the, or, you know, and that since COVID especially, WEF has become like a target uh, for the more fringe conspiracy mm -hmm. side of things. How how has how have you guys at, at like at the at the forum perceived that? How has how, did that come as a shock? Did you expect? I mean, you've always been targets as we've discussed, you know, as we've already discussed. Sure. But has there been what was what was behind the kind of sea change? Uh, I mean, I difference? think um, you know it is. It is a minority thing, the disinformation space. I mean, from everything we see and we track and we look at, it's a minority thing. Uh -huh. um, but it's absolutely 100% tied to state-sponsored disinformation. And that is, a, you know, a conversation that we're starting to get involved in now because, you know, this five years ago, you know, nobody in Canada was concerned about the forum, you know, the um, former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper had been, um, as had some of his ministers, and it's become on the very fringe of Canadian politics and issue. Yeah. Um, but it is a fringe, and I think that's the problem, is that this is a very noisy space because there's a lot of bots in it, there's a lot of state-sponsored trolling in it. Um, but if you look at actually where this came from, it came from a book that Klaus wrote early, uh, co-wrote in fact, early in the pandemic called The Great Reset. Yes. Um, and that became, initially, it, it was, you know, not picked up hugely. It did very well in Asia where it continues to do really well. But people actually sort of think that they quite like a great reset. But, you know, that's the, that's, uh, the Asian marketplace. But in in the US and a couple of other places, it was picked up um, particularly by the anonymous and anti-Semitic accounts that run on something called Politically Incorrect on 4chan. And so these kind of you know, slightly, well, very twisted accounts, which we know are almost always test sandboxes for Russian disinformation. You know, they were testing out memes and and things, and they latched onto this as a kind of part of their anti-vax narrative, part of their anti-WHO narrative, and also part of a, a broader narrative. You know, which is, you know, we know Russian disinformation wants to destabilize countries. You know, they've been behind protests in, you know, all, trying to organize protests in Missouri, both sponsoring both anti-fascists and the far right. And largely so far, the response of open societies in the West yeah. has been to note it and ignore it, or to think that maybe some action by platforms could do something about it. But what we haven't seen is people saying, hang on a second, this is a direct threat to the public sphere. You know, taking, you know, using any organization, be it the WHO, be it us, as a kind of vehicle for disruption, dissent, division is dangerous. You know, I mean, it's almost always 
uh, you know, goes alongside a lot of anti-Semitic stuff. You know, this is the protocols of the Elders of Zion narrative that goes back 100 years. And, you know, Timothy Snyder chronicles brilliantly in his books. And, you know, that has been behind what you've seen on some of that kind of fringe media um, in places like 4chan, 8chan and, and other areas. What's happened is it's been dog-whistled by some of this very fringe far-right media. You think about things like Blaze Media and some of this other sort of TV stuff. And that dimension is concerning because then it starts to break down the barrier and move from being the preserve of the anti-Semitic far-right and this anonymous disinformation ecosystem that's been built up, which is a really bizarre ecosystem. And you know, more and more reporters are now chronicling it. And it takes it into the semi-public space. And that's super, super problematic, you know? I mean, it really is something where, as democracies, we need to get a handle on who's poisoning the well and and grow up and, and get some coordinated responses around it. You saw in Germany in 2017, for example, when the German elections, there was a tacit agreement among the parties not to use leaked documents because they knew who was leaking them. You know, the leaks were coming directly from Russian hackers targeting political party servers. You know, they had agreements not to use bots, not to use some of the other stuff that we've seen being used. And I think politicians from both sides, or actually from every side in the West, need to kind of think, how do we protect the public sphere? Because it needs help and it needs protection. Because we've seen what, you know, we've seen what it can do in the last two years. You've seen this anti-vaccine movement grow, you know, based around really pernicious propaganda sourced straight out of Russia. I mean, in terms of counter-propaganda then, like, have you tried to portray the forum in a different light or have you tried to acknowledge some of these disinformation narratives? What has been your strategy to, or are you just still in the sort of like, if we ignore it, because otherwise Streisand's effect? I mean, I just wrote a piece for Canada's Global Mail um, basically on this. Right. Um, pointing out that one of the um, memes that was uh, circulated by a couple of politicians was an anti-Semitic meme that, you know, the Jew world order was actually where it came from. All right. And, you know, this passed through the barrier of person after person in the, in the far-right media until it became passed on as something that people thought, you know, people didn't look at the backstory. Right. behind it and I think you know our view is that I think we need to be more out there on this topic because it's it's a crucial topic you know back in 2013 in the risk report you know we said digital wildfires are going to be a big problem for democracies and you know nobody took that warning particularly seriously and you know we're reaping the consequences now with a major public health disaster in the last two and a half years so it's, you know, it's something where I think being silent is no longer really an option. But do, do you think that maybe, you know, in the spirit of a public sphere, you know, you have to invite some of these critics into the fold to address some of that, like with the, like the anti-vaccine uh, movement as an example, right? They, for me, as a sort of neutral observer, I mm. think that is 
bucketing people as sort of anti-vaccine in one camp and just like applying that as a pejorative term to what is really a very broad spectrum of, of um, critiques because you've got the side that just doesn't want mandates, then you've got the real anti-vaxxers who are just anti-vax on all fronts, then there's the people who are just very concerned about you know the specific mRNA vaccines. Um, so it's not, you know, to lump them all together I think is pro- probably doing more harm than good because then doesn't that sort of justify their their claims that you know the the global elite are not listening to them i mean you can have debates with people around facts and i think you know that is what politics does Mm -hmm. you know politics you can't make up the inflation rate in the uk today it's 10.1 percent right you know politicians on both sides are going to have to live with that make their arguments about what it is yeah Mm -hmm. now that's a policy debate how what do we do about inflation when it's at 10.1 percent that's a political argument it's not an argument to say inflation is not 10.1%. It doesn't exist. You know, there is no inflation. When you move away from a kind of world of bounded debate into a world really of, you know, frankly, some and some of this conspiracy stuff is deeply disturbing and very, very oh, irrational. Sure. Oh, here comes our food. Um, oh, great. Thank you. Uh, Ton. Merci. Thank you. Merci Merci. So, I mean, this, I will, I, I, the problem sometimes with, with eating and talking, yeah, it does relax people. It sounds horrible if you're listening. (laughs) Yeah, but I think that's part of the spirit of this uh, podcast. We are, we are trying to, to make it more down to earth, humanize all the, uh, the, interviewees um you, you eat too and you don't just eat bugs yeah no well they, you know that's a that's another lovely little conspiracy line that actually comes from cnn running a story yeah got picked up on 4chan surprise surprise mm-hmm. and this thing about insect protein on cnn it was called cnn being famously identified as a liberal mouthpiece etc cnn wanted people to eat bugs and this has somehow got rolled up into a whole weird uh, conspiracy that of course you know is the modern version of protocols of the elders of zion is it uh, i am not completely familiar it's, with it so it's um it's basically saying there's a shadowy cabal of people who are running the world um and um you know they're they're organized by and associated with you know well, jordan peterson he labeled them i think today in one of his um, Barney podcasts um, sort of saying, you know, there's a hidden secret group. The deep state idea that Donald Trump appealed to of, you know, who are the secret people out there? Um, you know, a man who's famously opaque about his business deals won't even reveal his tax affairs, um, but he thinks there's a secret group of people running everything. Fascinating. Well, the thing is, like, it is, I disagree on the point that it's a fringe. I think it is a much bigger um, demographic. And I think where, where it's, you know, potentially where, you know, the, the kind of very anti-Semitic and, and tropey stuff mm. probably is fringe. But where it bleeds into kind of the mainstream and it gets normalized as a sort of anti-global elite thing, um, I think the concern really is that there is not enough transparency. Um, and, you know, so from, from that perspective, do you think the forum is doing enough for transparency? Because I think we've done a lot to bring sessions and conversations out to people. Um, 
you know, and we get criticized both ways. You know, either you have a meeting that's, um, you know, behind closed doors and people say, what's going on behind closed doors? Or you broadcast something and people say, well, that's very banal and bland. You know, what are you, what is everyone bothered about? And the reality is, you know, one of the things I've learned, I suppose, in the last 12 years of seeing how government and business and other people interact is there are very few spaces for people to have actual conversations and interactions. Yeah. And, you know, people always assume, and, and I assumed, I have to say, when I was a journalist, you know, you sort of think there is a kind of email group that you're not on or there's some kind of WhatsApp conversation going on that you're not included in where people are kind of, you know, where people can say, you know, I'm the Chinese government, I'm the US government, what's going on here or let's do this or let's not do that. And people can talk to each other. Mm. And then actually, when you come into the space, you realize that there aren't those kind of places. There isn't that, you know, pub that everyone goes to in the village where everyone talks to everybody. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't exist. And I think, you know, when you actually come face to face with the reality of trying to provide a place that offers some of those opportunities for people, it's very difficult because you know not everyone does want to be in the same space and not everyone does want to be seen with x and y and z and some of the conversations that need to be had probably aren't best had straight out in the open because sometimes an ngo doesn't want to be seen meeting with company z but they need to in order to actually put their points and actually get some movement on an issue from that company you know sometimes Companies don't want to publicly come out and say things that need to be said, but actually are happy to have conversations behind closed doors about where they can help move the needle and actually make things a little bit better. So that side of it is is not easy to explain to people because I got to say I didn't get it before I arrived um, at the forum. You know, it was a mystery to me as to how a lot of that happened. I mean, I'm a realist, so I can totally see how you need privacy to like actually uh, push, you know, debate and policy ahead because you we're all human, right? And we all say things we don't mean. And in the current age where anything can be taken out of context and your words, you know, taken against you, essentially, you need privacy just to be able to be for, like yeah. for fright. But um I guess the, the question, I think maybe people are, you know, openly, you know, it's an open society model, forum is supposed to be pro-transparency, all these things, pro-democracy, but then on the other hand, it's facilitating this kind of back-channeling um, mechanism, which I totally agree, I make, I, I would defend that, but I guess it's the contradiction between the two messaging, uh, well, the, the me- public messaging is, we want transparency for everybody, but then actually, on the in reality we, we do a bit of the back channeling is that maybe why there's a conflict and why people misunderstand it and how do you get around explaining that then i mean the simple answer is there isn't a simple answer to it um, <laughs> and whilst i think it's important that we help people understand some of the complicated issues that there are and understand the complexity of them and that's one of the things i think is really important about the work the forum does I think it's also true that we don't typically take many policy positions, which is why it's, you know, kind of extraordinary to be um, to be labelled as taking policy positions on a whole bunch of different things, because typically we don't, mostly because we work with people who have very different opinions. And when you work with people with very different opinions, it's extremely hard to uh, come out and, and take a position on issue X 
Yeah, we've always tried to allow people to come in and have the conversation. But you do kind of take policy positions. I mean, as far as you're assuming there's a status quo and a, a norm surrounding certain themes, right? And that, in this day and age, is a policy position because norms themselves are under are being challenged, right? So you're assuming certain norms, which has de facto become a policy position. I mean, I think that's the incrementalist critique since time immemorial yeah. is that basically any incrementalist approach accepts the status quo and seeks to try and you know make it a little better and a lot of people would say well it's not good enough you know we, we need to change things more fundamentally or we, you know we need a revolution or we need to do something big and bold and at different times in different places that might well be right I mean would you have said to Nelson Mandela in the beginning of the 1960s you know hold your breath wait put your head down and and um, and I'm sure South Africa will turn out better in the end. Yeah. You know, probably not the advice that you, you would have given him all that he wanted or was even relevant. But there are other times when you think, well, yeah, actually progress does come best building brick on brick on brick. Um, and, you know, revolutions sometimes end up disrupting more than they deliver. So we stand on one side of that debate which is the incrementalist side. That's not to say that we're oblivious to or ignore or don't have time for people who have very different beliefs. I mean, there are people in Davos who think we're completely wrong and who think and who represent organizations that think that much, much more needs to be done. And we're very used to people saying to us, I was in a meeting yesterday where a very senior political figure basically ripped us a new one over our whole approach on climate saying that it wasn't sufficient that we're not doing enough that you know we're effectively helping to greenwash uh, companies and that you know this isn't good enough so you know these conversations happen right and they do sometimes prompt action but you know to get to the action point after the letting off steam point you need to actually gather people together and I mean this is politics right politics in the end is about campaigning and winning Right. It's also about delivering, and the delivering involves meeting people, and often they're people you don't like, that you don't have similar interests with, that you might not even want to meet with, you know. But that's part of the process, and we're part of that world, and it's a difficult world to communicate to people who don't want to make the effort to understand that it's complex. Now, encouragingly, a lot of people do. You know, we get, you know, we've had a very successful kind of presence on social media for a very long time. And we've, you know, been able to share a lot of stories that encourage people rather than discourage them, that don't demoralize them about some of the challenges we face. Because as a journalist, you know, I always remember the Daily Mail in the UK being described as the daily hate. Um, but, you know, a lot of journalism is about fear and loathing. You know, as Hunter Thompson said, it's about making people afraid or making people angry. And there's got to be a role as well for stories that make people feel, you know, that they can do something and that they can, there's some hope and that there is possibility of good outcomes oh, absolutely. and we've tried to build a kind of public face that shares some of that stuff if you like and that I think is important as well and you know that's one of the reasons I went to the forum in the first place was to try and do something like that I think that is actually very key I, I, I do feel I do feel like Western society and I guess regardless of your international you know nature you are a Western organization um, 
the West doesn't have very good stories about itself. Like they're all pretty self-loathing, and 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 in 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 the current situation, it's all. And I guess that is also feeding the backlash because people do need something to believe in and something positive and constructive. Um, but I was just thinking, like, obviously, we were talking about inclusivity and. Um, listening to all sorts of different sides. You famously hosted uh, Vladimir Putin, P Putin in 2019, mm -hmm. right? Yep. In, um, you know, how would he be invited again? I mean, who can predict what's going to happen in, you know, if he uh, gives back Crimea and um, the world turns into a very different place? You know, who can, never the, never. who can predict the future? But currently, where Russia is, um, you know, that it's waging a war of aggression against its neighbor. You know, it's actively engaged in disinformation campaigns across the Western world aimed at undermining. Including, I mean, very in a very minor way against us. You know, we're a tiny part of uh, its strategy, but it's, it's doing that. And it's decided to play a disruptive and, and really pernicious role in, in the global system. And, you know, that's dangerous. It's sponsoring, uh, you know, political movements and parties across, um, you know, Europe and other parts of the world. And, you know, we need to wake up to that in a big way because it is, you know, its intention is to poison Western democracy to turn it into a kind of dark version of what you see in Russia, which is a kind of ersatz kind of democratic system. But I still find it interesting that, you know, the forum would, would you know, this is what I, I think um, the public perception of the forum gets wrong, personally, is that in some ways you're very anti-woke, as the word goes these days, because you're not in the habit of cancelling people. Like, you no. hosted Trump. Yep. You hosted Putin. Yep. She. Yep. Um... I'm sure there's a whole list of others. Yeah. I mean, people would be cancelled in other areas. I mean, we, we, <coughs> we have brought people to Davos who are holders of political power mm -hmm. uh, and authority because you can have conversations without them, but if you actually want to have change and you want yeah. to have important conversations, you need important people. And that's one of the kind of founding principles, if you like, of, of what we do. Yeah, that we invite the. Does that get, know, is that office. getting more difficult though? Would, would, because given the cancel culture and this idea that you can't listen to the enemy, yeah, is that does that clash with what the forum is about? Because in my I, as an outsider, I would say it does. It's always difficult. I can't think of a single situation where it's not hard to bring people together I mean you know go to any Middle Eastern gathering and there are people who do not want to be in the same room with one another go to any region and you'll find you know fissures fracture, fractures mm -hmm. you know having spent my early time in Northern Ireland Bosnia you know those places have the kind of political divisions that you know are not just here and now they're generational and they're centuries old and they're deep and you know you have to take them extremely seriously and any work involved in trying to bring anyone from those communities together is fraught yeah and so really there aren't many places where it's a case of saying you know please come you know it's on the 23rd you know see you in in davos you know it's not doesn't work like that so there's a lot of work how do you get to go into a lot of work has to go into 
you know, relationships with governments to help them to understand what the possibilities are of being involved in conversations and dialogues on issues that are important to them so that, you know, there's no point inviting country X to a debate or a kind of session on a topic which has zero interest or zero kind of political uh, capital invested in. So some work has to go into understanding what those countries are interested in and what the conversations are they want to have yeah. and what the conversations other people want to have with them. And then you've got to aggregate that and see if you can come up with something, pardon me, that's meaningful and worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, their time is limited and precious and they have to make the decision that they want to come. So all of that kind of goes into the mix of this kind of, of, of bringing people together and convening them on a global level every year. Um, and it is, it is difficult and it is getting harder. You know, one of the other things that attracted me to the forum after, you know, 10 years of going to places where people wanted to kill one another is that I basically think that dialogue is a massive improvement on, you know, looking out of the window and not knowing if a sniper is going to blow your brains out. You know, it's it's worth taking the criticism and the shaming and the kind of, you know, grandstanding and the moralizing to deliver some of those conversations. And by the way, very often they turn out to be disappointing. Yes. You know, they turn out not to deliver what you hoped. They turn out not to be a breakthrough. They turn out just to be another touch point amongst many other touch points. But very occasionally, you can do something that moves the needle or delivers something. And, you know, I think it's a testimony to how effective the forum's been at doing that, that people always want to come back and engage because they know that it's an effective way of having some of those conversations and doing some of those things. You know, is it the be all and end all? Is it the answer to every global problem? Of course it isn't. But it's another place where you can have meaningful uh, conversations about really quite difficult and knotty subjects. Do you think the public perception about that mediation role is, you know, well, I mean, do you think the public really perceives the WEF as a mediator? Because I think that's probably the most important role that the, that the forum does play. But it is, it's lost in the messaging, I think. It, well, probably is lost in the messaging. And, you know, obviously being in charge of communications is probably my fault. Um, <laughs> no, I, I didn't but, mean it that way. But, but like, it's. But how can, you, how can you change that then? How can you. I mean, my, my view's always been that the only thing you can do to change people's minds over the long term is to, A, offer them as much information as you can about the problems that we deal with, not about, you know, the bureaucracy and the behind-the-scenes nonsense that goes on. And you know and act in good faith yeah. in the end and we've tried to act in good faith to the people who come and spend time with us and who we deal with and you know and that's about the best you can you can do and i mean we will be more on the front foot in terms of disinformation and things will like will you be that. inviting alex jones to one of your alex meetings? jones yeah that's a very good point well as long as he pays all the sandy hook families off yes well um, clearly 
you know. But is I mean, there, Alex is, Jones, there an, is there an argument that you should engage with people like Alex Jones to try and bring, like? I think the problem with someone like Alex Jones is he's an entertainer mm-hmm. and he's not a good faith actor. No. You know, there are. But that's, you know, that's there are true good, of many politicians. It's as well. true of many politicians as well. But it's but they have to go through the bar of winning office. And not always. Not always, but you know the entertaining ones tend not to win office. In, Gaddafi uh, was very entertaining. I, but I suppose. Uh, you know. So I mean, what my point is that not all, not everyone who attends the forum has been democratically elected. No, and not everyone in the UN is democratically elected either. Right. So it's not you know the world is not yet a point where every single leader is democratically elected, and it's not a point where. Even people within democracies agree about the system by which they elect people, or Precisely. the you know the divisions geographically, as I know coming from the UK, of where the boundaries ought to be. You know, there's a lot of people in Scotland who think they should live in a Scotland independent of yeah, the United absolutely. Kingdom. I mean, so all of that. Yes, but at the end of the day, you know, we deal with people as they are in office at the time. And, but you, you do, know. you do also deal with like cultural figureheads yeah. and um, and other kind of you know do-gooders, one could say, um, outside of. Uh, Hopefully. Yeah. So I mean, I just wonder, like, is there a you know bring them into the fold argument and then explain you know or is or is it more likely to backfire? I mean, we have, you know, there are all varieties of political opinion represented in a place like Davos if you're inviting, you know, 100 countries to come. You know, there are very, very different regimes in all of those places and different political shades and different political views. Um, You know, that dimension of it is... It just goes without saying that, you know, you have, you know, we had the true Finns in, in Davos. We've had all kinds of, you know, Sebastian Kurtz is a, you know, been a young global leader of the forum. He was a leader of Austria for a while. You know, we've had people from every single shade of Donald Trump. Yeah, what cabinet. was that like? What was having Donald Trump like? Was that was that like a big? I mean, from I was, obviously I was on the outside, but it seemed like that was a massive sort of distract, like everything that day orientated around Trump. I mean, whenever you have a very big G seven leader in a small place, um, obviously it's going to a, a attract attention and b it comes with a certain level of disruption because there's security and other things to be dealt with. Um, but actually, I think he, you know, our experience was he travelled with a very light, um, you know, group of people compared to some leaders. Really? And, um, you know, his team were very professional and very uh, easy to deal with. So, you know, it's... So he wasn't a diva? Uh, his team and everyone around him were super professional and super good to deal with. So, you know, we, we like working. Here, but... I, I mean, I don't know. I mean... I think people's perceptions of of what it's like to work with people on a working level as opposed to what it's like, you know, what they imagine it would be like, you know, I mean, people are not kind of in full pantomime mode 24 hours a day. They have a human side. There's kind of, and there's jobs to be done and work to be done. Has Putin ever been physically or just online? um, I think he, well, he came in 2009 Mm. when he was on stage with Michael Dell. 
Ah, and uh, famously had an, an uh, altercation with Michael Dow um, uh -huh. on stage. Um, and he had, I think, come as an accompanying um, sort of uh, figure in the late 90s when he was involved. He was um, involved with the Leningrad Mayor's Office and then he became Not involved quite in, top dog. Um, in other things around. Um, the government before Yeltsin brought him in in 1999. So in terms of like, so just going to the mechanics mm. of it, like, so obviously forum is in January. Um, we've had two mm -hmm. years of disruption, mm -hmm. and last year I think was particularly bad because you were under the impression it was going to go ahead in reality, and then you had to like last minute put it online, and then well, you had summer devils, which was we actually organised it about four different times in four different places, right? Um, and just to you know, for the benefit of any conspiracy theorists listening, it was a real pain, <laughs> and we didn't have a clue, unfortunately, even as we organised the global pandemic. <laughs> that it would cause us to reorganize our event four yeah. times. Um, so we went through all of the efforts to do that. I think what was interesting for us as an organization was, um, was two things. One, before the pandemic, you know, people always said, oh, you're a conference organizer, you're not a real organization, you don't do real things. Um, and that had, has changed a huge amount the last 10 years. We've hired you know, a lot of people who specifically work on complicated things and produce kind of complicated reports and analyses of stuff. But the, you know, the pandemic kind of put the truth to that. You know, yeah. Because if we're just a conference organizer, then we would have shut down on day two of the right. pandemic. And the, the work that those people do in across different industries, across different sectors, across different issues was worthwhile and good enough for people to actually want to join and engage. So we actually came through the pandemic with more companies engaged than at the beginning. And that was a a big kind of, I think, boost to the organization of knowing that we're not just people who arrange chairs and invite important people to events. You know, we've got a lot more to us than that. And I think secondly, it was, you know, imagining um, the forum without a meeting. Yeah. And, you know, what would it look like? And in fact, you know, what it looked like was 6,000 hours of online meetings on different topics. And people really, I think, found that space very helpful because the corollary, if you like, of, of being a global organization organizing global events, you know, we, my diary and my travel schedule were horrible for 10 years. I mean, I was on the road probably two weeks of a month traveling all over the world to different places and different things and suddenly not to have that gave people space to actually do more in terms of the kind of academic side of the work that they do you know the actual report writing the kind of research kind of time in the library if you like all that's online now all that library work and that i think was really helpful too to kind of reorient the organization and repurpose it and so those two things were were actually very helpful for us as an organization even if going through the pandemic for everybody was a horrible experience and hideous and going through it with staff and people not being ill yeah and you know we're like any other workforce not all of our people wanted to be vaccinated 
and you know and we've been through all kind all the same issues that every single workplace has been through in terms of getting know, people back in the getting office. people back in the office you know um, but is there an important i mean did it also crystallize you know the idea that you need to have face to face meetings like how important is face to face relative to online because there is a certain like some people have tried to present the idea that it's all over. Ah, we've got t you've got five minutes. I'll, I'll get the um, I'll get the builder. Um, thank you very much. Um, I think it does come. You know, face to face meetings are important. You know, there's something. You know, just fundamentally humanly connective about sitting down with someone and seeing them and seeing their body reactions, seeing their face reactions, seeing how they respond to you, how they respond to their environment, seeing them in situ even. You know, when you go as a journalist and visit somewhere in their office, it tells you so much more, doesn't it, than yeah, talking yeah, yeah. to them over the phone. Um, and so all of that, I think, uh, was waiting to come back. And when we ran our event in the summer of this year in Davos, it was a huge deal to see people come back together again and just kind of connect with each other after two and a half years of not doing it. And there is a sense of community amongst those people. And, they, you know, because they do get to see one another at you know, regular intervals normally, the pandemic had interrupted that completely. And for those people to come back and, and be present, it's important. And so I thank you very much. Um, and so I, I'm very glad that that dimension of, of what we do is back. But I don't think, I think what the pandemic and what the online digital response opened our eyes to was the fact that there's a lot of conversations that we can have without jumping on airplanes and without um, burning aviation fuel. So there's a hybrid, you know, an ideal sort of balance, as with most things. I think so. And I think, you know, that lesson from the pandemic is one that uh, a lot of people have drawn and it's, you know, we've seen the way people have changed their ambitions, you know, where they want to work, what they want to do with their lives and, th and those kinds of responses. Um, you know, people want to work anywhere in the world now, potentially. They want to, they want more freedom than they had before in terms of the workplace. So that changed and it changed for us. So since you've got to go, um, yeah. I've got two quick fire last questions and then I'll give you the last word on whatever you want to communicate. Uh, quick fire one is obviously the infamous post that went viral in the conspiracy space was the one about you will own nothing and be happy, right? Mm -hmm. How was that, that? How was that brought up? Like, is that a that that seemed to get a lot more traction well, than it, possibly? It, it doesn't so necessarily it, reflect your views. Read my Global Mail piece okay. um, in Canada's uh, leading newspaper, folks. Subscribe mm -hmm. now. Um, basically, it got traction through this Jew World Order post uh -huh. on 4chan. Uh, it had sat on the line very happily for four years. No one had paid the blind exactly. attention to it. It was picked up deliberately by an anti-Semitic troll account which is probably Russian, and it was turned into the Jew World Order, um, a piece of anti-Semitic tribe um, that suddenly took off amongst that community of But I guess my question is, like, in terms of how it ended up on the website, it, yeah. it was one of those thought pieces. It was a think piece yeah. about the world in 2030, and the person who wrote it was a very nice Danish politician yeah. called Ida Orkin, who put her view forward, which is, uh, you know, a view from a green Danish elected politician. So not, necessar not, not necessarily representing the... No, it's an opinion of, yeah. piece, mm -hmm. you know, and it says at the bottom of every single post, you know, this is the opinion of the author, but people tend not to read that, and it's 
especially trolls and uh, bots and anti-Semitic accounts run by someone in Leningrad. And is um, my last quick fire one is does this get to Klaus? Is Klaus is, is he upset by the has he been targeted in a bad way? Is he you know what the human side of Klaus? How does he take it all? Uh, Klaus is like he's an 84 year old guy who's very busy trying to concern Take about the, world. <laughs> the way the world it works. You know, he comes into the office every day, yeah. and I think if he spent his time dwelling on that, you know, it would be like an actor kind of reading, you know, a bad review or something. He doesn't. It's not something he gets unduly upset about because he's upset about you know climate change. He's upset about you know a host of other issues you know that are affecting the world right now, like most concerned citizens are. You know, was he happy with? Because you did the documentary, the fly on the wall one, with uh, Marcus Vetter. Is that we a good did reflection? Or? Do that. I mean, uh, that was an interesting exercise. I don't think anyone. Um, I think having cameras around all that time is like uh, super got the Kim challenging. Kardashian experience, right? Yeah, um, I, you know, I'm not really in it. I didn't. I, I don't like being on telly. Uh, and, Despite your background, um, yeah. <laughs> because of my background, yeah. and. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a, an interesting kind of slice of of what the cameras see at something like Davos, and you know the good and bad. Is it representative? I mean, it's you certainly there's you know you see what you see in in that documentary, but like any documentary, it's like where the cameras were at that moment in time. So there's a whole ton of other things going on that you don't get to see, and that it wouldn't really be you know that we you can't get let in to see because people don't want cameras around everywhere all the time it's not drive to survive you know although it'd be kind of cool if it was wouldn't it? well that wraps up my questions last word before you dash off so very lovely to see you and oh, you. uh you know in-person meetings hey yeah i'm i'm all and thank those. you so much for lunch it's very no kind of you I really appreciate it i hope you i hope you don't get a ticket yeah well, me too i'm gonna have to run back right. now take care that was leaked lunch with isabella kaminska brought to you in association with Hire, the pseudonymous messaging app. For more on what happens when finance and media intersect with reality, check out The Blind Spot at www.the-blindspot.com.